Welcome to the College of Europe podcast, where we debate European affairs and more. I personally feel that the transatlantic partnership has never been closer. So we're experiencing a very specific time in the history of the EU-US relations with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the current war. Yet, in my view, we can't really forget about the moment of tensions that came before this. For example, AUKUS or Afghanistan or the overall Trump administration that really challenged the relations between the two sides of the Atlantic in different ways and also on different matters. I'm conscious that the elections are also around the corner when it comes to the US, and this could influence once again the current status and the future status of the transatlantic partnership. So I believe the future of the transatlantic partnership will be built on a two-track order in which the EU and the US will continue to share values, democratic values, and cooperation in a lot of different fields, but they will also maintain certain divergencies or a certain level of competition if they can't really agree on specific matters. Much of it will also be determined by the level of strategic autonomy that the EU will be able to reach. Do you guys have any views on... This is a very interesting and important debate. So strategic autonomy is really about usually uh, security and defense. It made its first appearance in an EU official document in 2016. And it really emphasizes that the EU should have its own defense and military capabilities. But there was no intention to be in competition with NATO in particular, so the real architecture of the Euro-American security architecture, because NATO is specifically the guarantor of peace and security in Europe. But not all EU members are NATO members and vice versa. So the Article 5 of the Washington Treaty really remains the framework in which there is security. So strategic autonomy really um, looked at the incentives to fill in military gaps. And uh, we can really think about how the invasion of Russia in Ukraine impacted this uh, Euro-American relationship. I also think that strategic autonomy should be think in the light of the new election next year and the possibility of Trump coming back in power in the U.S., and with it, the fact that he put into question the centrality of NATO in European defense and the, the U.S. commitment to defend Europe. So, yeah, I think strategic autonomy should be also thing in the, in the light of, of that. Oh, and just to add to that, Sami, on the notion of strategic autonomy and also Gautier, it's not only, I think, like the war in Ukraine, but also if we take it back and think about how the notion has been challenged and understood differently, you know, COVID, uh, we put the notion of open strategic autonomy. Now we're talking about, oh, how the war in Ukraine and Russia's war in Ukraine has uh, changed the situation. But it's also then, I think, about narrative, how the U.S. understands the notion and how Europe decides to continue to present it or try to take it down a bit, try to take it down? No, I think you're definitely right. And we need to take into account that, especially now with the war in Ukraine, there is a real need of more cooperation between NATO and European defense. And that European defense really has its place in the European security architecture. And we could really see uh, NATO consolidating its role in collective defense and then a room for the EU in crisis management, especially in Africa or like in the Balkans, for example. I mean, it is interesting that currently the United States has finally recognized the European Union as somewhat of a military actor simply by giving intelligence to the European Union and not just uh, keeping it in, in the scope of NATO. 
at the same time, at least in, in defense, I think it's important to keep in mind that there are still many obstacles to more cooperation between NATO and the EU. At least, I could say, the divide between Turkey and Cyprus, for example, that literally prevent from any institutionalized cooperation between both institutions. And also, if I may, I wanted to specify that I believe that the transatlantic partnership should go beyond the mainly military and defense uh, dimension, because also the civil dimension is really important, especially to face the current challenges concerning hybrid threats, which are involving normally economic coercion, weaponization of interdependence, disinformation and sanctions, and uh, cyber attacks. So in this case, uh, uh, hybrid threats are actions below the threshold of the armed attack, and they are deliberately targeting democratic states' systematic vulnerabilities, uh, exploiting their weaknesses. And uh, I believe that a transatlantic partnership in defense and security only focusing on that would be limiting and uh, not reaching the full potential and also not being able to face the current uh, challenges. I think also, and on the civilian part, I think the transatlantic relations future also depends on how, for instance, the EU has this anti-coercion instrument. But if they don't man like manage to align on common positions towards, I don't know, strategic rivals or competitors, like, for instance, China, because they have different uh, interests that are not always aligned, that really will define how they manage to be assertive, how they manage to be coherent, and how they manage to implement something that is strong on both sides with players like China that don't manage to get in and try to weaken the alliance from within. Because in the EU, we see that some member states don't necessarily have such strong positions on trying to counter China. And the US really is pressing for that. So I think that can be a driver of division and lack of uh, coherence uh, or potential lack of coherence, unfortunately, between the transatlantic partners, which I think we should continue to monitor and watch, I guess. But I think you're right, Cecilia, to mention China, because it's true that neither the election of Joe Biden nor the war in Ukraine erased divergences between the EU and the US. And China is the elephant in the room right now, especially in security. So we have to see what will be next and what the war in Ukraine will bring on, on this topic, especially in view of the next strategic concept of NATO, for example. And considering those divergences, I think it's also good to talk about the areas where the EU and the US converge, and especially the trade and technology concept, for example, which has good perspective for the future. On the elephant in the room, I think last week we saw the summit of the Americas. And of course, the U.S. tried to invite a lot of presidents and some very prominent, like the Mexicans, didn't attend. Mexican president, I'm sorry, didn't attend. Guatemalan uh, close to home didn't either. And I think it's also very important to just see how China is acting in other areas uh, besides just acting in the EU or in the U.S., how it's acting in Latin America. Because, of course, it's one of the biggest providers of foreign direct investment. And when you tackle that from a values perspective, I think having someone that's promoting just money, cash inflows and massive investments and doesn't ask for anything in return is something that the transatlantic relations should really question and really try to maintain, I guess, some sort of democratic values and cohesion in the America's continent. So do you think that the value-based relationship between the EU and the US is what is actually and currently shaping the relationship at its best and could actually help converge opinions on China and action on China or... I think it's a great question. You've sort of managed. I wouldn't say if it's the best or the worst, but it definitely is essential and it's the strong point of transatlantic relations. At the same time, we have to think about the issue that the only way to promote our values is by making sure that within our countries that those values are being respected. And we currently in the European Union, both in the European Union 
and in the United States face sort of a rule of law crisis or a constitutional crisis. And while... No, just to follow up on the internal point. So do you think as long as the US and the EU don't solve their internal problems in terms of rule of law and respect of democratic value, I would say, do you think they risk to undermine their credibility as legitimate actors on the international scene and legitimate actors to actually counter the Chinese influence in many different areas, including Latin America. I do believe that is the case. We currently have the issue, for instance, in the European Union, that one of the conditions, for instance, for accession into the European Union is upholding the rule of law. Some of the future um, candidate states of the European Union are in the Western Balkans, which also have currently major influence of China and of Russia in there. If you don't manage to portray on the inside that you do respect the rule of law and make the member states not just respect this condition at the accession point, but also further along the road, then you don't represent these values. At the same time, a House Select Committee on the January 6th attacks commenced its hearings last Friday. Those hearings are co-chaired by a bipartisan committee. However, I believe that Congressman McCarthy has said that he would, uh, should the Republicans win in the midterms and regain the House, that he would abandon this committee, which would mean that January 6th insurrection would not continue to be pursued and investigated by the House. I think you raise an excellent point on the question of credibility, because of course you can't defend something you don't uphold internally, but at the same time you can't look at it that simply. We don't have to pause everything outside and wait until everything's perfect in the US and in the EU to then act outside, because then we could be waiting along for a long time. This is something that has been happening in the EU and the US for years, and the outside world, I mean the Americas, Africa, Asia and other corners of the world can't really wait and we shouldn't wait until everything's perfect and settled. Uh, it undermines our credibility, but we need to act either way. It's a very interesting point to nuance it. However, it seems like in the transatlantic relations partnership, the values play a very important role, whether that is democracy, the rule of law or the markets. But not all the different actors capitalize on their values. So if we take the example of um, the foreign policy of Russia and China, they don't necessarily try to bring in or project their values where they, they send official development assistance or foreign direct investments. They don't seek to have human rights respected, or and that's really something that the Europeans and the Americans capitalize on, and it's very important in their decision-making abroad. So we have to really remember that the foundational base of the transatlantic relationship is those values, but not all the actors try to project them. And in the new era of a great power competition and the return of influences in the neighborhood, for example, it's a very asymmetrical conflict that we see there. So yeah, I completely agree with Gauthier and those values being the cornerstone of the EU-US relationship. And at the same time, we have to keep in mind that while pressuring, for example, China to come closer to those values, cooperate with it in different areas such as climate change and how, how can we do that? 
If we speak about the transatlantic relationship in the 21st century, we also have to consider not just the physical realm we are in, but also the virtual realm. Recently, Congress published a paper on what the transatlantic data privacy framework will look like, which will enter into force and provide the possibility for commercial transfers in the US and EU. On values and the digital sphere, I think it's one corner is like artificial intelligence. We know uh, that Europe really wants to something that is human-centered and analyzes risks posed by evolutions in AI. But um, others, actors like China, they are uh, enforcing facial recognition, you know. I think that's something that we can really work more together. Uh, we have some common positions, common approaches on artificial intelligence across the Atlantic, but it's maybe not enough at this point. My feeling on transatlantic trade is that, well, a lot of the long-standing disputes have been solved. I mean, we sort of kind of tackled Airbus, we kind of tackled uh, the 232 uh, tariffs and all. And we're now focusing on a, what I call like the positive agenda. So the Trade and Technology Council on focusing on avoiding future divergence, uh, regulatory divergence in different areas and trying to cooperate more uh, strongly. And this, of course, was first front uh, move, sorry, brought forward by the war uh, in Ukraine. But I think my, I guess, critical view is more than we're trying to focus on things that we can solve and prevent, which is definitely a good step. But we're not really tackling, and that's what I, I'm, I'm sorry about, I, I'm, it's kind of a shame that we're not really tackling what has been bothering the transatlantic relation for years and years. We're talking in the TTC about great things, but we're not addressing, I don't know, agricultural subsidies, for instance. And in that sense, that's what TTIP failed in a couple of years ago. It's because we have issues in transatlantic trade relation and pretending they don't exist is not going to help us solve it, I think. This for the Euro-American trade partnership, but also for the multilateral trade infrastructure, so the WTO, the EU and the US have been for a number of years The two entities with the highest number of uh, claims and being defendants in the whole world, and um, we see that the with the that the dispute settlements uh, being stuck like it is now and and seeing this crisis is really difficult because the multilateral system is mostly based on the West's value, on the Euro-American values of equality and of democracy. So this really goes beyond just the U.S.-EU partnership, but goes in an issue that affects every state in the world. Thank you very much for all the contributions. We have the pleasure now to give the floor to the current U.S. ambassador to the EU, Mr. Kittenstein, who will be able to further insist on the main characteristics of the transatlantic partnership and answer all our questions and doubts with his expertise and insights. So it was a pleasure to join you guys, uh, especially to Cecilia, Gauthier, Sara, Sami and Veronica. And thank you, Giovanni. Before um, leaving the floor to Mr. Ambassador Mark Gettenstein, I wanted to thank you all and wrap it up so saying that uh, the current status of transatlantic affairs, as we see, we are quite optimist and we believe that uh, there will be a stronger cooperation, especially in military and defense, due to the event of the war in Ukraine and also further cooperation in terms of uh, digital policy and uh, climate change fight. So the current status of transatlantic affairs is quite good. And we believe that it can just improve in the years to come. And it was a true pleasure and honor to be here for the fifth anniversary of MATA program. And we'll be happy to go on the other side of the Atlantic next year. Thank you so much.
Good afternoon. Um, thank you for joining us today, Ambassador Gittenstein, to commemorate the fifth anniversary of the Master of Arts in Transatlantic Affairs and discuss the outlook and current challenges of transatlantic relations. Today, I'm joined by Maria from Spain. Hello. Sami from France. Hello. Veronica from Germany and Poland. Thank you for having me. Myself, Cecilia, French and Guatemalan. And we're going to ask you questions on energy, trade and security issues. So great. I'll go first with some trade. So in the context of the Trade and Technology Council, what are the shortcomings, Mr. Ambassador, of focusing exclusively on a positive agenda? What do you mean by a positive agenda? I noticed that question. You mean one that's easy or uh, what do you... Uh, I'd say that's something you can say, something that's easy, um, that you're only focusing on solving things that you can solve and not really tackling the issues that are harder. Well, as is in any policy dispute, you often want to start with the easy questions and just keep building towards the more difficult questions. So I'm not surprised that we did that, although I would not argue that the questions we're coping with are easy. The supply chain questions, uh, artificial intelligence, the standards issues are very difficult issues and very important issues. And often some of the most important issues appear simple at first, but once you get into the disputes, they become much more difficult. It is true that some of the most controversial issues, like the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, were not discussed in the TTC. Quite frankly, I wish they had been. We might have been able to reach consensus over a set of policies that might have been a bit more transatlantic if we had, but we didn't. A lot of those decisions were made before I got here, and we have a lot of work left to do in the digital space, not only on those two statutes and their implementation, but on the Data Act and the Artificial Intelligence Act. But the artificial intelligence is an area where there's likely to be strong collaboration, and I hope it'll influence the policy decisions that the EU makes on the legislation as well. I'm optimistic about where this will go. You know, another area that's been very difficult that we're going to do further collaboration on through the TTC is export controls and investment criteria, both two areas that are very difficult issues and very important, but they are not easy issues. Thank you for your answer. I'll turn over now to Sami. Thanks, Cecilia. So with the Russian aggression in Ukraine, NATO seems to come back to the basics and focus on collective defense. Mr. Ambassador, do you think it is the time for the EU security and defense policy to have a bigger role in crisis management? I'm going to talk about this in my speech, so I'll say I don't want to steal my lead here. But one of the things I've learned since I've been ambassador is that the European Union has become not simply an economic multilateral organization, but a, a security organization. And one of the central dilemmas and challenges we face in the transatlantic relationship is the relationship between the European Union and NATO. And developing new roads, rules of the road in terms of security issues, because now the European Union is becoming, in effect, a security institution. Once NATO decided not to become, quote-unquote, kinetic in Ukraine and send troops, then the four of us are deciding many of the most vexing questions we face in terms of developing a security architecture for the 21st century are actually being dealt with by the European Union. So all the security interests and institutions within the European Union need to be looked at again, and we need to be very forward-looking about security challenges uh, as we face uh, the 21st century. 
I think one of the problems is that if you look at this in terms of the 1990s, it would be a more traditional, conventional warfare kind of model, which is what NATO is. And the challenges we face now are mainly economic, asymmetric warfare, disinformation, cyber. Those are issues in which the, there's as much expertise uh, within the EU as there is in NATO. And we need to come up with new rules of the road in that space. Thank you. We now turn to Maria. Thank you. My question is focused on energy. So resulting from both COVID-19 and the measures taken to address the war in Ukraine, the Eurozone is experiencing a dramatic increase in prices. Mr. Ambassador, how can the U.S. help its European counterparts combat the supply-side inflation that the EU is experiencing because of increased energy prices? Well, as you probably are aware, uh, when President Biden was here in late March, he and President van der Leyen announced a new task force that is going to deal with uh, gas supplies, especially liquid natural gas coming from the United States to the European Union, to the Europe generally. Uh, and we are committed this year to provide 15 BCM, 15 billion cubic meters of gas, which is a lot, to Europe through liquid natural gas. Now, the problem with that, and then in the into the future, 50 BCM per year, which is a tremendous amount of gas. We have a lot of gas in the United States. The problem is at least twofold. One, you have to liquefy the gas, and we have the capacity to do that in the United States, but probably not 50 BCM. So we're going to have to build new infrastructure in the United States to liquefy the gas. And you and Europe are going to have to build new huge commitments and infrastructure to both gasify the gas, the liquid gas when it comes over, and then put it into infrastructure pipelines to get it around Europe. Now, one of the things that, and I was there when uh, Amos Hochstein, who leads this effort in the United States, briefed the president. I was actually in the meeting. And he explained that some of the infrastructure that Europe will build will also be capable of moving hydrogen. So, first of all, natural gas is a much less carbon-intensive form of energy than is petroleum and gasoline. But more importantly, uh, hydrogen is almost zero carbon emissions. So we are not only providing greater independence for Europe, if we provide you with gas, which should have an impact eventually on the markets and drive down the price of gas in Europe, but we will also be creating a structure by which you will accomplish your, in the world's climate goals, because we're going to provide infrastructure for hydrogen as well. That's what the plan is. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. We now turn to the last question by Veronica. I would like to ask you on your view of the future of the transatlantic relationship, Mr. Ambassador. At the time, we have a transatlantic relationship that is stronger than ever. How can we ensure that its solidity is ensured and avoid potential future disintegration? Well, I think you're right. It's stronger than it's ever been. We've got to continue to do what we are doing, which is to collaborate in every way we can and to have a deeper understanding of the needs and concerns and risks that each side of the Atlantic faces. They are different, but they are not that different. And uh, inflation uh, is a very good example of an area in which, uh, you know, and energy security is an area in which we need to be understanding of the problems you have in Europe and you need to be understanding of our the concerns in the United States. I'll give you two examples. One, there's a lot of talk by everybody about the fact that the European Union 
has not adopted the sixth energy package. Well, there are serious economic problems with completely cutting off from Russian gas. By the same token, in the United States, as those prices go up, prices it's uh, it's th those commodities. There are worldwide commodities, and gas prices go up in the United States as well. Especially as you attempt to regulate petroleum, because that turns into gasoline. It doesn't affect our natural gas prices, but it does affect our gasoline prices. And I've seen polling numbers in the United States that show that Americans are supportive of what we're doing on Ukraine as long as gas prices don't go above 50 cents a gallon, which they're likely to do. So we need to be understanding on both sides of, of the stress that we're putting on our political institutions and decision makers as we grapple with this terrible problem in Ukraine. And so the, in the first instance, it's a matter of understanding each other and attempting to accommodate our divergent but similar concerns on both sides of the Atlantic. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador, for your time, answers, and for coming to Polish today. It was a privilege. This was the College of Europe podcast, where we debate European affairs and more. This podcast is available on all listening platforms, such as Spotify and Europod. For more information on our website, www.coleurope.eu. Also, don't hesitate to engage with us on social media. <laughs>